Let's pray for God's blessing uh, on our time in his word now. Father, thank you for giving us the words of eternal life, and we thank you for these great passages of scripture. We thank you for the work of those who have gone before us in the faith, our great Christian forefathers who saw danger and defended the truth, and we pray that we would imitate what they got right and what they did well all the days of our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn first to Romans 9. Romans 9, 10 to 20 will be our first scripture reading, and then I'll read Ephesians 1, and we're going to walk through the passage in Ephesians 1. We're going to do a series on the doctrines of grace, uh, since we just had the 400th anniversary of the Synod of Dort, and we need to make sure that that great work does not uh, end up forgotten. Romans 9, 10 through 20 is our first scripture reading, and then we'll read over in Ephesians. So Romans 9, 10 through 20. This is God's word. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had, done, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? And then turn over to Ephesians, to the right there just a little bit. Ephesians chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 3 to 14. This will be the sermon text for this morning. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Ephesians 1, verse 3. This is God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in himself, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise 
who is given as a pledge to our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. May God bless the reading of his infallible word. The hymn writer Jean Ingelow in 1878 penned the words to the great hymn, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. And the lyrics to that hymn go, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. T'was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. 2018-2019 marked the 400th anniversary of the great Synod of Dort that took place in the city of Dordrecht in the Netherlands to deal with a very serious doctrinal controversy with a party that came to be known primarily by its main proponent, Jacob Arminius, Arminianism. And his doctrine, as you've heard me say many times about all false doctrine, his doctrine was not new. In fact, it was a revival of very, very old heresy. But it came to be called Arminianism. And you'll hear people even today, oh, you're a Calvinist or you're an Arminian or the worst word anyone's ever invented, a Calminian. By the way, way, there's no such thing. Um, An entire series of lectures could be given on the history of Christianity in the Netherlands. It's an amazing story of persecution and bravery and people that, that died and were tortured to death for the cause of the gospel. We could talk about that for, for hours on end. There's so much to it. So the Reformation starts in 1517, and then just over 100 years later, you have this huge controversy that erupts in the Reformed churches in the Netherlands. You've heard many times from me about the importance of our dear brothers and sisters in Christ who lived and died and studied and fought, succeeded, sometimes failed before us in the faith. And as we go through this series, we're going to look at what the doctrines of Arminianism were saying because they're still around today. They never do go away. We need to look at what those are saying and how the word of God answers these things and why this is so important. But this was a very serious crisis in the Christian church at that time. In celebration of the 400th anniversary of the Synod of Dort, uh, since it happened in 1618 to 1619, so 2018, 2019, two wonderful books were published. The first was by the Reverend Dr. Daniel Hyde of the United Reformed Churches. It's called Grace Worth Fighting For. And I believe I have purchased every available copy of it left in the world. Dr. Godfrey, Robert Godfrey, wrote a book called Saving the Reformation. The Pastoral Theology of the Canons of Dor. Great titles. Both of those are just right on the money. The grace of God is worth fighting for. It was worth fighting for. It is worth fighting for. The whole history of Christianity has been a fight for correct biblical doctrine. For the biblical doctrine of grace. You can't read the New Testament and miss the fact that much of the New Testament itself is a polemic, is a refutation of false teachings. The Synod of Dort did, as a matter of fact, save the Reformation. It did save the Reformation. And to this very day, the continental Reformed tradition, we who are from the, the islands, you know, England and Scotland, the Reformation happened there, our Reformed Baptist brethren, all look to the Synod of Dort as one of the main, most important events in church history that helped to safeguard the grace of God. 
After so much work had been done, so much great teaching from Scripture had been recovered, the rise of this Arminian party that denied the grace of God, it was a major threat to the gospel. It was a major threat to the work of evangelism. It was a major threat to the health of the Christian church. And while there's a lot of backstory, there's a lot of key players and a lot of important theologians, the key events, both churchly and political, and so many remarkable moments that led up to the synod where 84 delegates from all over the Reformed world met and discussed this for six months, from November of 1618 to May of 1619. And there's so many stories I could tell you. I've been learning a lot of interesting things. At one point early on in the proceedings, one of the Reformed churchmen challenged one of the Arminians to a duel, to, to the death. And you think, nobody today cares enough about theology to challenge anyone to fight you to the death over who saves who in the gospel. But back then, this is real serious stuff. It was real serious to them. So they, they, they had a, it took a little recess and got everybody calmed down and they were able to, to not kill each other. But I want to focus on the key text of Scripture. This morning, Ephesians 1, we're going to spend probably the, the last two-thirds of this message just going through the text there, because that's the key to everything, is the Scriptures, what the Bible says. <clears throat> but before we walk through it, here's what you need to know about why the entire Reformed world went to war. They went to war against Rome, and then 100 years later, they went to war against the Armenians. The Bible teaches that God has the judicial right to condemn the entire human race for its sins and to leave all of us under God's just condemnation for sin. Man in his sinful condition is in rebellion against God and man does not have any desire to repent. He has no desire to do anything but rebel. The whole of humanity is described in the word of God as dead in trespasses and sins in Ephesians 2.1 and Colossians 2.13. We're described as a giant valley of dry bones. And if any of us are to live again, it has to be God by his almighty power and by his loving strength. He has to make us alive. We who are dead in our transgressions and sins. Man comes into this world with a heart of stone, a a heart that's controlled by evil desires, a heart that is willingly, happily enslaved to sin. And no one among us can ever, will ever desire to know God, desire to repent of our sins, or desire to come to Christ unless God wills it. This is one of the grand triumphs of the Protestant Reformation, opening the Bible afresh as they did in the 16th century and reading what it said in the original Hebrew in the Old Testament, in the original Greek in the New Testament. It was was shown to them that God and God alone is the one who saves. God initiates. God elects. Christ comes into the world, not to make a way of salvation possible, but with a definite mission to save specific people. We do not cooperate. We don't assist in our salvation in any way. There is nothing that God sees in us, nothing that he responds to, which causes him to act to save anyone. God simply chooses to love the unlovable. He chooses to seek those who are not seeking him. He chooses to capture rebels who are fleeing from him and to make orphans into his own beloved children, all at the terrible cost of the cross work of his son, The doctrine of the Arminians, who are also known historically as the remonstrance, to to remonstrate is to protest. They they were the protesters. And by the way, they had five points that they were protesting. That's why you get the famous five points of 
of Calvinism. You just need to know that there, there aren't just five points to Calvinism. Uh, there's more like 160 points. Okay, it's the, it's the whole system of Christian doctrine. The all everything our confessions teach, everything the Bible teaches. So there's no such thing really as a, as a five point Calvinist. That that whole system of theology is what Scripture teaches, and it preexists the Synod of Dort. The Arminians said that God's elections of individuals unto salvation was conditional. It was conditional. Before I read their exact formulation, their own words of their doctrine, it's important to understand that. Nobody who reads the Bible can avoid having a doctrine of predestination and election. So many people will say, well, I just don't get into all that stuff. Well, you have to because the words are used all over the place. You have to have a doctrine of predestination because it's used in Scripture. You have to have a doctrine of election because it's right there in the Bible. People are said in Scripture, people are said to be predestined by God unto salvation, unto glory. They're elected by God, predestined unto adoption and salvation. Now, here's how the Arminians understood predestination. They said this, quote, God decrees to save and damn certain particular persons. This decree has its foundation in the foreknowledge of God by which he knew from all eternity those individuals who would, through his prevenient grace, believe, and through his subsequent grace would persevere. Now, that phrase is very important, prevenient grace. What is that? It simply means a divine act whereby God makes it possible for everyone to believe on their own power instead of God's irresistible grace, which is what the scriptures teach. So basically, here's what the Arminians are saying and what they're trying to protect. God predestines people to heaven that he foresees will believe in him. In other words, God looks into the future and sees what people would, when given an opportunity with some help from him, believe in Jesus. And then when he sees that and learns that, he then predestines those people to be saved. Those people are then predestined to eternal life. So God does his part in response to man doing his in order to bring about the salvation of an individual. The Reformation churches of the world saw that for what it was. That is a denial of of salvation by grace. That's a denial of salvation by grace. If grace is God's response to what men do, that's not grace. That's not grace. This Arminian doctrine, like all false doctrine, was, of course, nothing new. If you reverse 1,150, 1,200 years of history, even before the 16th century, you will hear the exact same identical debates between the great churchman Augustine and the false teacher Pelagius. Augustine said that God saved sinners. Pelagius said that sinners saved themselves with God's help. Augustine succinctly stated his theology. I love how this guy could capture so much in one sentence. Augustine said, God elected believers, but he chose them that they might be believers, not because they already were. In the Canons of Dort, which I highly recommend you take the time to read one afternoon. You can read it one afternoon. Just Google Canons of Dort. And by the way, Canon is spelled C-A-N-O-N. C-A-N-N-O-N is a what? A weapon of war. Okay? I used to misspell it all the time. Um, on the internet, I would debate with Arminians, and every time I misspelled it, they would say, you're shooting again. <laughs> the canons of Dort, in response to the Arminians, they say this over and over again in the canons. They say, thus they have brought out of hell the Pelagian error. This smacks of the proud heresy of Pelagius. This is only old Pelagianism. They knew what it was. 
Arminianism is Pelagianism. It's the same thing. It's the same old heresy the church dealt with a thousand years before the Reformation. It was a revival of that. The idea that man casts a decisive factor in his own salvation, thus becoming, in effect, his own savior. The doctrine that God looks into the future to discover who would believe in him, that also destroys your doctrine of God. God doesn't learn anything, ever. God doesn't look into the future to find out who's going to believe in him or to find out this or that. That's just not the case at all. God already knows everything. So why is this so important? Why did the Reformed churches respond with unconditional election? God doesn't look down the the corridors of time to find out who, who will do this and then react to it. They responded with God unconditionally elects who he's going to say, listen, if you lose the doctrine of unconditional election, you don't have salvation by grace, period. And discussion case closed. Without unconditional election, there is no such thing as grace. No such thing as grace. As I said, there's amazing moments, amazing uh, things that happened during the, the synod. And they, those guys did a phenomenal job. They really did to protect the gospel of free grace from the intrusion of human merit. And they knew what was at stake. Think about it. Does God save sinners or do sinners save themselves with a little help from God? Could a question be more basic than that? Who gets the glory for salvation? God and man? Man or God alone? What's one of the great Reformation solas? Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. The delegates who traveled to the city of Dort for the council, who were from Geneva, from Calvin's Geneva there, they said this about the Arminian errors. Listen to this quote. I love this. This is what they said about Arminianism. What is this other than a disparagement of the glory due God in free election to the praise due Christ for redemption? And of the power of the Holy Spirit and conversion. It is also a weakening of Christian comfort in life and death. And a tearing up of the certainty of salvation. Finally, it is a removal of childlike fear and trust in the hearts of believers. Rather, it inflames the pride of man against God. So that he glories not in God or in Christ, but in himself. End quote. Dear congregation, the Bible does not teach anywhere that God looks into the future to learn what people will with the help of grace, believe in Jesus, and then reacts to that knowledge by predestining them to go to heaven. The Bible teaches God owes salvation to nobody. And as a matter of fact, he would have done no one an injustice to leave all of us in our sins under his just condemnation for them. The only way that anyone could possibly ever be saved in this situation would be if God, out of his mere good pleasure, from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life and entered into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no antecedent prompting to God's redeeming love that he sets on anyone. We're all equally undeserving of it. It's an eternal and everlasting love intended to do one and only one thing, and that is to glorify the grace of God. Article 7, under the first head of of doctrine. By the way, if you read the Synod of Dort, and I would encourage you, I'm going to try to get a bunch of copies of it. You can do it in one afternoon. It's not very long. It's not in the order of tulip. I remember reading it for the first time going, this is is not in the same order I thought it was going to be. Just remember, it's not tulip. If you read it in the order that it's written, it's all tip. 
Okay, it's U-L-T-I-P, but ULTIP does not sound anywhere near as cool as TULIP, okay? But just remember, the first head, I thought this was supposed to be about total depravity, and it says divine predestination. Okay, right, unconditional election, ULTIP. All right, so this is the U, unconditional election. Article 7, listen to this. Listen to how warm, how pastoral, and how practical this is, this definition. Election is the unchangeable purpose of God by which he chose the salvation in Christ from the whole human race, a fixed multitude of particular persons. God's election is from before the foundation of the world in relation to people who fell from their original integrity into sin and destruction by their own fault. God chose his elect according to the most free good pleasure of his will out of mere grace. Those chosen, listen, those chosen were neither better nor more worthy than others. But we're like others fallen into the common human misery. From eternity, God made Christ the mediator and head of all the elect and the foundation of salvation. God gave the elect to Christ to save them. And effectively to call them and draw them into communion with him through his word and spirit. He decreed to give them true faith in Christ as well as to justify them, sanctify them. And finally, after powerfully preserving them in the communion of his son, to glorify them. All this shows God's mercy for the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. So it is written, God elected us in Christ with love before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. He who predestined us, adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, by which he made us accepted to him in the beloved. And elsewhere, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You can't read the canons of Dorit and not want to jump up and shout amen. It's not a scholastic exercise in dry theology. This is the heart of what it is to know you're loved by God. I want to walk through Ephesians 1. Hopefully, are you still in Ephesians 1 there? Let's look at verse 3 and following. Great passage. This is what they cited from. And the, the Synod of Dort cites this passage again and again to defend the grace of God. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Here Paul writing says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay, stop there. Each of the persons of the Godhead plays a distinct role in the redemption of the Lord's church. God the Father elects from the mass of fallen humanity the ones who will not get justice or fairness, but mercy and grace instead. Paul recognizes what all Christians ought to recognize. God is to be blessed. For blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Not God plus my free will. Not God 99% and me 1%. But God is to be blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We bless God, not ourselves, that we are Christians. That we have eternal life. We praise God for what he's done in saving us. At lunch the other day with a group of guys here from church, we were eating pizza and and reading the Westminster Confession of Faith and talking about effectual calling and regeneration. And one of the guys who's sitting here right now said, yeah, someone should write a book about being born again. It'd be really short, one sentence. You had nothing to do with it. (laughs) We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Our treasure is, as Jesus taught us, in heaven, not here. And that's why God's people through the centuries have been willing to lose everything, their property, their freedom, even their own lives, 
because our treasure is somewhere it cannot be touched. It's in the heavenly places. Indeed, the very righteousness by which we're justified before God is not in us. It doesn't adhere within us. It's in Christ at the right hand of God. It can't be touched by my sin. Our righteousness is in heaven at the right hand of God. Hear the promise of another one of Paul's letters, Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. What a great promise. Among the many spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, it would include that we've been declared righteous. We've been justified before God once and for all eternity. No charge of sin can ever be brought against us again, no matter how much we ever fall into sin. We're justified. We've been adopted into the family of God. We have been fully forgiven of all of our past sins, of every sin that we're presently committing, of every sin we ever will commit. It's all been nailed to the cross. We have God's promise that all that we ever go through in life will always have our spiritual ultimate good in mind. We have the grand privilege of a private audience with the king of the universe anytime we want in prayer. We can bring him our every need. And we have the promise of our Lord that he will never leave or forsake us. And that he's always with us to the very end of the age, guiding us, walking along with us through the fire, through the water, until we die and until he returns. We are safe in the Lord Jesus. The wisdom of God tells us this in Proverbs 13, 7. There is one who makes himself rich yet has nothing. And one who makes himself poor yet has great riches. I always think of the Apostle Paul when I read that, that verse. Here's a guy who lived a posh life. I mean, this guy was educated by Gamaliel, the father of all rabbis. He could have had a really nice life, educating people's kids and, and being itinerant and doing everything. And here he is in a dank prison cell with nothing but the clothes on his back, covered with scars and beatings. And he realizes, I have the true riches. You can have everything else. Give me Christ. Give me forgiveness. Give me fellowship with the Lord. Give me the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and his guiding light to me. True believer in Jesus has the true riches, the incorruptible inheritance, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it's not defiled. It does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for us where moths cannot eat it, where thieves cannot break in and steal and rust cannot destroy it. Blessed be our God for giving all of this to us, his people, freely without any charge to us without payment from us, without good works, and only because he freely chooses to love us that much. Christians, as they mature in their faith and they grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, they will see more and more what Jean Ingelow wrote that hymn about. "'Twas not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me." Many Christians, if not most of them, often start out thinking, as I myself did, that I'm a believer because I'm a lot smarter than everybody. I had a desire to seek the Lord and I I, I desired to see my sin and I I knew that Christ was the only remedy and I knew I, I didn't evolve from African apes or anything like that. I knew that. I'm too smart for that. They knew they needed to be saved, so they came to Christ. But as time presses on and as you read your Bible more and as more scriptures learn and as the Holy Spirit sanctifies your mind, you begin to see the real reason. 
the real reason you came to Christ, the real reason you saw your sin, the real reason that we wanted to learn scripture, the real reason we wanted to know Jesus and believe on him alone and turn our backs on the godless world and disconnect from friends that lead us astray and rest on Christ alone. The real reason was God's gracious, free, unconditional, eternal, electing grace. God is the one who chose me. That's why we came. Why do we have all these blessings? Why do we have the greatest of all treasures that outweighs everything else the world could ever give us by a measure of infinity? You see verse four? Here it is. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. This is what we mean when we say that we believe it is by grace alone that we are saved. God chooses from among the mass of fallen, evil, rebellious, foolish, wicked humanity. From among all that lay together in the common sin and misery, he chooses a multitude of individuals by name to be in time saved by the work of Jesus Christ. And when did God make this choice? When did he choose us? It's right there in the text. See it? Before the foundation of the world. Before Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We were already known by God in his heart before he created, before the foundation of the world was laid. And upon what basis did God choose the people that he chose? Was it kind of like throwing the dice or something like that? The scripture simply describes God's decision as being according to his own purpose. God chooses according to his own purpose. It's not arbitrary. It's according to the purpose and plan of God. But one thing we know for absolute certain that that decision was not based upon the works that we would do, that God saw would be done, or anything like that. To emphasize this point in the clearest, simplest possible terms, he said in that other passage. Now, stay there in Ephesians. I just want to read Romans 9 to you again. The Romans 9 passage. Not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Now listen to verse 11. Romans 9:11 is the clearest statement of unconditional election in the whole Bible. For the twins were not yet born, had done nothing good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his election would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, which one of those phrases do people tend to really struggle with? It's the Esau I hated, right? Which one should we struggle with? Jacob I loved. The, the, the phrase there that ought to make you lose sleep at night and just not understand, I just don't understand. How, how could that be true? It's not Esau I hated. You should have hated them both. They were both scoundrels, just like all of us. It's, he loved one of them? Why? Jacob deceived his dying father. Jacob's name in Hebrew means one who deceives, one who supplants. What shall we say then? People hear that. Is God unfair? Is, is there injustice with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it does not depend on the willing one or the running one, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and whom he and he hardens whom he desires. 
You will say to me then, as I myself said, how can God still blame us? For who can resist his will? And what's the divine answer? Who are you? Who are you, O man, pot, creation, finite being, sinner, thing formed? You going to talk to me like that? You going to snap your fingers and put me in the dock? I'm the God of heaven and earth, the sovereign king of the universe. I'll do whatever I want. And I don't, I'm not accountable to you. I'll glorify myself however I see fit. As one person told me one time, I could never worship a God like that. And I said, I know. And apart from his grace, you never will. Key verse there. Twins, they weren't born yet. Paul, as if they could sin while they're fighting each other in the womb. They hadn't done anything good or bad yet. I mean, I guess Esau could have said, well, he kicked me first in the womb. <clears throat> and according to God's purpose would stand, not of works, he throws it in there, not of works, but of him who calls. You see, the Arminian party were saying, it is of works that God chooses who he's going to save. It is of works. God foresaw the works we would do. And then he chose us. Paul says, it's not of works, but according to his calling. Under the first of those five heads of doctrine, again, where the so-called five points of Calvinism come from, which is on divine, unconditional predestination, unconditional election. After they spell out the, the biblical teaching, there's 18 little paragraphs, 18 articles. They spell it out, and then they move into a whole series of rejections of errors. And the fifth error that they reject is this. Listen, the synod rejects the errors of those who teach. The election of particular persons to salvation is incomplete and non-decisive, made on the basis of foreseen faith, repentance, holiness, and piety, <clears throat> begun and continued for some time. It becomes complete and decisive on the basis of final perseverance of foreseen faith, repentance, holiness, and piety. This is the gracious and evangelical worthiness on account of which he who is elect is more worthy than he who is not elect. Therefore, faith, the obedience of faith, holiness, piety, and perseverance are not the fruit or effect of immutable election to glory. Rather, they are conditions or causes without which these persons are not completely elected, being prerequisites which are foreseen as fulfilled. And listen to what they say. This teaching is repugnant to the whole Bible. They wrote that in there which repeatedly declares in these texts and many others to our ears and hearts, election is not from works, but from calling, Romans 9, 11. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed, Acts 13, 48. He elected us in him that we might be holy, Ephesians 1, 4. You did not choose me, but I chose you, John 15, 16. If by grace, then not by works, Romans eleven six. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, 1 John 4, 10. If the Arminians are right, that God actually chooses us based on the good works he saw that we would one day do, we are saved by works, aren't we? Period. The notion that God looked into the future and learned things he didn't know, that is also destructive. God, God knows everything. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's nothing hidden from God's sight. He doesn't look down the corridors of time and learn things about us. The Arminian notion that God saves us because of good things that he learns that we will do is uniformly, utterly absent from the Bible. Election unto eternal life is not from works, but of God who calls, of God who shows mercy. It's not because we're foreseen to be holy, but God elects us in order that he would make us holy. 
You see, look at verse 4 there in Ephesians 1. You see it? Verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy. Okay, stop there. What it, now, if it said, he chose us because he saw we would be holy. Well, they'd have a point then. But election is unto holiness, not because we're already holy. God chose us so we would be holy. God doesn't choose us because he saw we already were. Now, there's a little debate. You see at the end of, of verse 4 there, that phrase, in love. Is that the last phrase of the, the sentence in verse 4? Or is it the beginning of the sentence in verse 5? And there's arguments that could kind of go either way there, but it really doesn't affect the overall teaching of the passage that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Or if you have in love as the opening of verse five, then it would read in love. He predestined us either way. It's glorious to know that God's gracious, gracious choice and his predestining work flow from what God's love. That's the point. God chooses freely to love the unlovable. He chooses to glorify that love and that grace in sending Christ to suffer and die for them in order that they would be holy and blameless before him on the day of judgment. It's such a wonderful source of assurance to know that the, the driving force behind our salvation is the love of God. It's because of his great love with which he loved us that he chooses us in Christ and predestined us unto adoption and to be part of his family. We'll be presented spotless, holy, and blameless before the judgment of God, wearing the perfect, righteous, white robe of Jesus Christ's righteousness because God's love is the most powerful force in the universe and that love will not be denied. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. Or in love, you see verse five now, verse five and six, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. That word predestined in Greek, it's a wonderful word, and it's completely transparent in its meaning. If you look up the word, the Greek verb uh, for predestined, it means to destine beforehand. God predestined us to be adopted, to go to heaven. Our eternal destiny was determined before the foundation of the world to be adopted as sons into the family of God, to be in a new heavens and a new earth forever with Christ, with our Christian family, and in perfectly redeemed bodies, free from sin and all of its effects and all of its ravages. And God did this to the kind intention of his will. Notice again, what is the source of all these incredible blessings? The will of God the choice of God, the election of God, the predestination of God. God is the subject who wills. He's the one who chooses. He's the one who predestines. We, the people of God, are the passive objects of that choosing. The salvation and glorification of the church of Jesus Christ, this vast multitude of undeserving sinners who are redeemed and justified, sanctified, glorified by the work of Christ, will glorify the grace of God. That's the reason God does it. Notice verse 6 to see the reason God chooses to save people. You see verse 6 there? To the praise of the glory of his grace. There it is. So why does God save me? Why does God save you? Why does he save every person that he saves? To glorify his grace. And what is that grace? It's his unconditional choice. It's his electing grace. We could do a dozen sermons on why grace is so glorious. And what that phrase means. The glory of his grace. That grace is freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Please notice here that 
For grace to be grace, it can only be free. It can only be freely bestowed. What does that mean? Listen, please. Grace cannot be God's response to anything in us or done by us. Can't be. If it is, it's not grace then. It's entirely and only free. A sovereignly bestowed gift given to God's people, all of whom are undeserving of it, equally undeserving of it. Our acceptance in Christ is freely given to us by God, just as our justification is also freely given to us by God. See that last phrase in verse 6, in the beloved. You know who that's talking about there? Freely made us accepted in the beloved one. That's Jesus Christ. He is the beloved. We're made accepted in the beloved. Now, what does that mean? Why does he put that there? He uses the, the word agape there, in the beloved one. Remember when Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his public ministry? What does God the Father say from heaven about him? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because of our sin, our rebellion, God can't look at any of us and say that. This is my daughter. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He's not pleased with any of us, but he is pleased with Christ. The only sinless man in the history of the world, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, savior of the world. When we're conceived and we come into the world, we are covenantally, federally, representatively in Adam. Once one of God's elect ones is born again and granted repentance and saving faith in Christ, they are moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. They are then in the beloved one, federally. When we're in Christ, his personal righteousness is imputed to our legal bank account before God. And his cross is accepted as the full payment of all of our sins. And then we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit for the rest of this life and all eternity. Verse 7. See verse 7? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God is not stingy with his grace. It is lavished upon his people richly. God is rich in mercy, rich in love, rich in grace, rich in kindness and pity toward his beloved children. Notice verse 8's continued description of the wonder of God's rich grace. You see verse 8 through 12? which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, that in the heavens and things on the earth in him also, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. The inheritance of going to heaven, being in the new heavens and the new earth, is something we were predestined to, predestined to obtain that inheritance. It was given to us who believe in Christ alone before time began, we're told. And at God's planned and appointed time came to us in the gospel. And when we saw our sin and we were broken by the spirit of God's convicting work and repented and granted saving faith, we were given those blessings. They are forever ours, our eternal inheritance. People often sinfully can't wait to get their earthly inheritance. Like the prodigal son comes to his father, dad, I wish you were gone so I could have my inheritance. I want it now. But think of the difference between a bit of worldly wealth we'll have two or three decades, maybe if we're healthy to spend and enjoy while our bodies disintegrate and break down just before we die. 
Is there any way to contrast that with the eternal inheritance that awaits those that know Christ? The wedding feast prepared by God, paid for by the blood of Christ, furnished by the Holy Spirit. No, I got to go look at a field I just bought. I just bought a cow. I need to go test it out. People have their excuses. I have some sin I'm into right now. Proverbs 23, 5. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Remember what Jesus taught the world about our affections, about our hearts? He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart will be also. So what is that? What is the heart? What does he mean by that when he says our heart? It's the seat of our highest affection. The seat of our highest affection. What is it? What is the one thing I'm living my life for? The thing I value more than anything else. And Jesus taught, there can only be one of those. There's only one thing. He said, no one can serve two. No one can serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other. You may look like you're serving two, but there's really always only one. And eventually circumstances will show which it is. Look at verse 13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Just throws that in there again. To the praise of God's glory. The gospel is the gospel of our salvation, the salvation of those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, predestined to adoption as sons, made accepted and holy in the beloved one, predestined to obtain the eternal inheritance, chosen so that we would be holy and without blame before him at the judgment and sealed and dwelt forever led by the Holy Spirit of God. Those who receive this grace are unconditionally chosen by God to receive it. If that choice, that election, were based on something in the sinner, then it would not be by grace anymore. And it also wouldn't be to the praise of his glory. It'd be to the praise of our glory. Romans 11.5, In the same way, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to the election of grace. Why were there Jewish people that were believers at the time that Paul wrote that? They were chosen. There was a remnant according to the election of grace. Not people who, they had their act together and they were good people. It was God had his elect among them there still. And if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. I want to give you an advertisement for the Canons of Dort here. Canons of Dort. That short, succinct document. It's wonderful. It's pastoral, biblical. I'll tell you, I struggled so mightily with assurance until I read it and finally understood the love of God. Didn't understand the love of God before that. Finally got it. Those godly forefathers of ours, they saw the threat to the gospel and they stood up and they defended the biblical doctrines of grace so that we would have the gospel today. They recognized Arminianism for what it was. It was a revival of old heresy, a revival of false teaching that would destroy the Christian church. And I want to tell you, historically... It's exactly what Arminianism does. That's what it has done everywhere it's ever found a home. 
It has degenerated into full-on liberalism and unbelief everywhere it's ever found a home. Everywhere. Every Ivy League school in this country was at one time a reformed seminary. You know what they did? Oh, they didn't embrace Arminianism. Oh, no, 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 no. They wouldn't do that. They tolerated it. Oh, we would never embrace it. But for the sake of a bigger tent and more influence, we'll go ahead and tolerate it. Within a fortnight, they were liberal. And now they're doing who knows what to this day. Reverend Daniel Hyde, he wrote some stirring paragraphs. I want to read just a few sentences from him, from his book. As he gets to the end of the historical introduction, the theological introduction before he moves into the canons, he wrote this. Recounting this struggle above, I don't intend for you to now look at the canons like you would a museum piece. Paul's fight against the Neonomians, that's people who had works to the gospel, and Antinomians, people that said, yeah, once you believe, you can just send all you want, you're good. Augustine's fight with Pelagius, Luther's fight with Rome, and the canons' fight with the Arminians continues today. We need the canons of Dort in our fight to preserve and propagate a pristine doctrine of God's grace in the salvation of sinners like you and me. Here we are, plunged in the depths of depravity, then raised to behold the eternal love of God. Here we are taken to the cross, where we bow before the satisfaction made for us, but then rise because it is so sufficient that we must promiscuously publish its news to all tribes in every nation, on every continent. Here we experience the uncontrollable power of the Holy Spirit efficaciously applying the infinite merit of the Son of God to the hearts of sinners like us. Here we feel the pain and struggle that comes with being Christian, loved by the Father, but struggling to love, buried with Christ, but constantly digging up our sins, filled with the Holy Spirit, but being led astray by our own passions. Yet God, the triune God, is powerful to preserve us in his loving arms and to bring us to the celestial city. We need the canons of door in our fight because they echo the Holy Spirit's voice, being saturated article after article with the language of his inspired scriptures, proclaiming to us what it means to be saved by grace. We need the canons of Dort in our fight because unlike any other historic creed or confession, they pastorally apply scripture to some of the most pressing problems in the Christian life. Assurance of salvation. Being simultaneously justified yet sinful. The death of infants. The weekly reception of the means of grace. And the imperative of Christian holiness. We need the canons of Dort in our fight because they are the only production of the first and last ecumenical reform synod. The church historian Philip Schaff called the synod of Dort, quote, the only synod of a quasi-ecumenical character in the history of the reformed churches. In this respect, it is even more important than the Westminster Assembly of Divines, which was confined to England and Scotland. As an international synod, the Synod of Dort functioned as an ecumenical reformed council in a way that no reformed gathering has before or since. The canons of Dort, therefore, are not a Dutch production, but they represent an ecumenical consensus of the best minds in the whole reformed community. End quote. You know, I've sat down and had coffee 
with elders, pastors, seminary graduates, and ask them, have you ever read the Canons of Dort? And had person after elder after elder after elder, pastor after pastor after pastor. No, never have. Remember one, one in particular. I just can't believe in limited atonement. I just can't believe that. I'm, I'm a Christmas Calvinist. No, well, no, well. There's no such thing as a Christmas Calvinist. And, and I asked them, have you ever read, have you ever read the, uh, the second head of doctrine in the Canons of Dort where they defend who Christ died for with scads of quotations from Scripture and they answer all of the errors and all the, the, the lame arguments people bring against it? No. That's pathetic. We owe these people more than that. These are our fathers in the faith. Without the precious biblical doctrine of unconditional election, we have no doctrine of grace. We'll lose justification by faith alone. If election is based on what we do or based on qualities in us, we're not saved by grace. The Bible and our dear Christian forefathers, they were wise, they were discerning, they were biblical enough in their thinking to know that it fell upon them to stand and protect the biblical gospel from the intrusion of human merit. God saves to the praise of the glory of his grace. Lose the doctrine of unconditional election and you no longer have a gracious salvation for which Christ alone is glorified. God forbid that any of us fail to recognize that we too are in a war for the truth of the gospel, just as all those who have gone before us. And we have to have the characteristics of a battle-conscious soldier. What good is a soldier who doesn't even realize he's at war? Let us stand immovably upon the clear word of God and make sure that from the text of Scripture that it's always Christ and only Christ who's glorified in the salvation of sinners. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and predestined us to receive the inheritance of heavenly glory. That's why we believed when we heard the gospel. Just as Acts 13, 48 says so simply, so clearly, and this is the last thing I'm going to read to you. Luke wrote by the Holy Spirit there, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life, believed. Why do we believe? Is it because we're better, we're smarter, we're more worthy? No. God chose us to glorify his grace. Don't ever let anything intrude on who gets the glory for it. In your thinking or in your life. That's where true assurance is found. And that's where a true understanding of God's love is found. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and God, thank you for not leaving the human race in sin as you could have done. Thank you for not leaving us in our sins as individuals, those that, that truly know the Lord Jesus and, and trust only in him for their whole salvation. May we always know you're the one that began the good work in us. You will see it on to completion. Jesus Christ will not fail to bring any of his children all the way into heavenly glory. He cannot fail to do his father's will. And he said, he promised, of all you have given me, I will lose none, but raise them up at the last day. May Christ and his saving work always be the anchor that we rest upon. In his name I pray, amen.